0: We guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health.
1: Welcome to Creature Feature, a production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host to Mini Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and today on the show, it's listener questions. I love answering your animal biology questions, and you guys are so good at asking them. If you have any questions to ask that you'd like to hear answered on the podcast, please send them to creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com. Next week, we're going to have a regular episode, but for now, enjoy the soothing, relaxing tones of a casual but well-researched Q&A about animals. So I love this batch of questions very much. You guys are just so... You, yeah, I'm so proud of you all. You, you ask such amazing questions that always sends me on a great research tunnel and are things that, like, I am really excited to address on the show. So let us start with this first one, which is from Senor Moderna on Twitter, who asks... What is the weirdest, creepiest science fiction-y story or behavior you know about any animal ever? So this is a hard one, because there are so many. It's hard for me to pick my favorites, but I'll just go through a few that came to mind. I mean, creepiest science fiction ish I think has to go to the parasites. Like any number of parasites, they are always so incredible and weird. So there are parasites that control their host's brains, like the parasitoid wasp larva that infects orb weaver spider brains and causes them to become mindless zombies that spin a nice little cocoon for the parasite larvae. And then the spider dies, and the parasites suck all their juices out and just shucks their dead, desiccated body out and goes to sleep in their little, little cocoon that the poor zombie spider had to weave for them. So that it's just so interesting to me that you have this very relatively simple animal, like a wasp, and I mean especially the larva and it has some kind of chemical that manages to hijack the orb weaver spider's brain and make it weave a little crib for it and it's just it's so insidious it's so fascinating very very sci-fi to me too um there's also the head bursting fungus cordyceps and I think we've mentioned this a few times on the show it's really fascinating It infects ants, other insects, arthropods. It causes them to wander around like zombies before clamping down on a branch with their mandibles so the parasitic fungus can grow right out of their heads and release more parasitic spores. So that is very, to me, horror movie, science fiction, zombie movie-esque. In fact, I think... um, So like in The Last of Us, that video game, they use cordyceps as the fungus that turns everyone into zombies. I think in, I think it's called Cargo, it's a zombie movie where I think the, I think it's a parasitic fungus or something and then it makes people stick their heads under the ground as the spores uh start to develop in like in their brains and which reminds me a lot of the cordyceps because these insects like their last act is to bite down on a branch with their mandibles so that the fungus has a secure place to grow which is really messed up and really interesting the ocean also has some really incredible sci-fi type animals In terms of the creepier ones, there is a microscopic parasite called Salmonicola that infects, it sounds like a beverage, doesn't it, Salmonicola? Sounds like some kind of like Coca-Cola, like like there's cherry Coke and there's salmon-flavored Coke. But no, it is a parasite that infects salmon and directly feeds off of their ATP. So ATP is the most basic unit of energy that living creatures use. It is produced from respiration. And so the fact that these Salmonicola parasites feed directly on the ATP, they actually do not have any mitochondria and they don't breathe. So they're the only animal known in the world that does not breathe and doesn't use some kind of form of respiration. So they look like alien sperm to uh, be blunt, they are shaped like sperm, and then they have these two eye spots that kind of, you know, they look like the classic, like, gray alien kind of thing with the, with the big eyes, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, uh, any kind of alien logo, It, it just looks exactly like that, except attached to a little, a little sperm tail. And those eye spots are not eyes at all. They are actually old stinger cells from their ancestors, who were probably a more jellyfish-like animal. Uh, Cola shares the f- same phylum as jellyfish of Cnidaria. So these are probably some kind of thing that like started out as a sort of jellyfish-like like Cnidarian and then just lost a bunch of features so that they could become these little microscopic parasites on salmon. They now use those stinging cells that look like alien eyes not to sting but to actually latch onto the salmon tissue. And another cool thing is they glow green under fluorescent light. So they are I think the most alien looking and most alien acting creepy little parasitic animal that I know of. They they look like cartoonish aliens and they don't breathe, which is completely bizarre. So we are going to take a quick break, and I will be right back to answer more of your listener questions.
0: Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With our flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world.
2: Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away.
3: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
1: All right, and I am back, and I am really excited about this question. This is from Jamie, uh, wrote Farthing on Twitter, who asks, How domesticated are cats? Aren't they technically counted as a domesticated species? All I know is that they will cuddle in my lap and then bite my face when they're hungry. Oh, cats, the cuddly little demons who sometimes allow us to be in their presence and feed them. So, they are indeed domesticated. They are a separate species of animal from their wild counterparts that have been tamed and adapted to live as pets to humans. But you are absolutely correct, Jamie, in noting that they are still really wild. So unlike dogs, cats are not too dissimilar genetically from their wild counterparts. It actually turns out that their natural wild behaviors, like chasing mice, suited humans really well. Like when we started to have agrarian societies where we would store grain and we started to get mice and rats all in our business, eating up our food. And cats came in and was like, we will take care of these mice and rats. And hey, if you could give us a dish of milk every so often, we'd be cool with that. And so we formed a partnership with Cat, Cat and Human, joining hand and paw to dominate the world. So they did adapt through selective breeding uh, to be less scared and more tolerant of humans, you know, interacting with them, petting them without getting our faces scratched off, for the most part. Dogs, meanwhile, have made an incredible transformation from a wolf-like ancestor who, if you met, would definitely try to rip your face off, into the sweet lovable goofs that we know today they were far more transformed to fit our human society than cats d- had to go through also one thing to note is that cats don't have in general the floppy ears like i think there's the scottish fold is a breed of cat that has the fold down ears but they're quite rare most domesticated animals on the other hand from dogs to bunnies to pigs have those floppy ears, because they've seen a loss of the firmness of their ear cartilage through domestication. This is due to the way that animals develop uh, as embryos. So neural crest cells are a group of cells in early embryonic development that go on to differentiate into many different types of cells, including cartilage, melanocytes, which control for coloration, there's smooth muscle, and also certain types of neurons, including those that comprise the adrenal medulla. To kind of grossly generalize about the adrenal medulla, a proportionally larger adrenal medulla means, in general, a more aggressive or easily frightened animal, whereas a smaller adrenal medulla, a more chill animal. That's a, that's a big generalization, but you know, otherwise I'd have to go into a lot more detail about the adrenal medulla and who has time for that. So fewer neural crust cells in embryonic development means a less developed adrenal medulla, which also just happens to mean also less cartilage because, as I mentioned earlier, those neural crust cells both develop into cartilage, melanocytes, and also these uh, adrenal medulla cells. So it just so happens that because these cells differentiate from the same cluster of cells, when you reduce that, cluster of original cells, it means both less cartilage and smaller adrenal medulla. And it also means that the melanocytes, the cells that control for coat coloration, are, you know, more blotchy and patchy. That's why domesticated dogs have these little spots or patches on their fur, whereas wild wolves do not. It also means that with less cartilage, the ears flop over because there's less strong cartilage. And you will notice that with cats, even though their ears aren't floppy, their coats tend to be more more modeled and patchy compared to their wild counterparts, which either can be they can have spots, they can have stripes, but it's usually pretty even even coating, whereas like you, you get calico cats and stuff where you have these like splotches of coloration. so that's that's pretty interesting to me. So the reason that cats did not go through as great of a change from their wild counterparts to domesticated pets it's just simply that they didn't really need to their behaviors didn't require such a great change as like wolves did i mean interacting with a small wild feral cat is a lot less dangerous than interacting with a wild wolf to kind of put it in a simple way, but yeah, so cats did not really take that much coaxing to become a house cat, Uh, They that, that life for them was pretty good, whereas wolves, we had to go through a lot of iterations to get to chihuahuas, so yeah, really great question. Another question from Twitter user Iker Pelcastra is, to what extent are domesticated animals responsible for the decrease of wildlife in urban areas? So this is a really good question. Yes, domesticated animals can do a lot of harm to indigenous species of animals and plants, especially in urban areas. So cats are notorious bird killers. They actually kill one to four billion birds globally every year. So if you can keep your cat an indoor cat, that is gonna be much better for the environment and you know, definitely spay and neuter your cat because they are, wow, doing a doozy on the bird population. In fact, naughty kitties have been the cause of 33 extinctions worldwide, not just of birds, but other animals such as rodents, uh, like the Key Largo Woodrat in the Florida Keys. So yeah, bad kitty, very bad. The dodo actually may have gone extinct due to the cats, dogs, pigs, and rats, that came to the island Mauritius along with Dutch sailors. So rats not exactly domesticated by humans, but they have definitely become adapters to, in fact, exploiters of human society to thrive. But yeah, when those Dutch sailors came over, they had ships that had cats and dogs and pigs and those either outcompeted the dodos or killed their chicks or killed the dodos themselves. I mean, the Dutch also killed some of the dodos, but yeah, it was a combination of hunting the dodo, but also these invasive species of domesticated animals that really, really spelled the end for those lovable goofball birds. Livestock can also cause the endangerment and possible extinction of species by grazing indigenous plants, And if there overgrazing of indigenous plants, those plants can go extinct and endanger the wildlife that rely upon those plants. So, you know, like I always say, the ecosystem is like a Jenga tower and you just don't know what's going to happen when you take out one of those bricks. I'm not good at Jenga, so, you know, it's especially bad in my case if I go around eating a bunch of birds. Does that make sense? Anyways, next question. Uh, Another question about pets. Uh, This is from Jess, who reached out to me at creaturefuturepod at gmail.com. So she writes, Hi, Katie. I'm a huge fan and coming to you with a hard-hitting guinea pig question. As long as I can remember, they've been a staple in elementary school classrooms and pet stores. How and when did a rodent from Peru become such a common pet? They have no discernible use. Though I have attached some empirical evidence of their undeniable appeal. Thanks so much. Your podcast makes my commute to work so much better. Jess, thank you so much, Jess. And thank you for the cute guinea pig pictures. I will always take cute pet pictures any day, any time. Send them to me. So, Jess, I do have some terrible news for you about your guinea pig pals So, guinea pigs came from the Andes of South America, and they are the domesticated relatives of wild cavies. So, they were domesticated, not as pets, but as livestock, to be eaten. So, we mainly associate them as pets in the U.S., but in South America, they are also food, much like rabbits. So, in the city of Huacho, Peru, there is a guinea pig festival where guinea pigs are dressed up in cute outfits and many dishes featuring guinea pig meat are served. And if you find that unsettling, you should check out any state fair in the U.S. that will have like a petting zoo right next to a barbecue or a cow and sheep costume contest. Uh, it's really all a matter of which animals we grew up thinking of as pets and which we grew up thinking of as food, which is not universal and not really based necessarily on on anything scientific. You know, a, a guinea pig, I would say, is a lot less intelligent than a pig, uh, like, you know, a hog pig that we eat in, in all over the world. But, you know, people may be more horrified by a little guinea pig being eaten than buy bacon. It's all, it's, it's really interesting. It's like all this cultural perspective. Although I remember when I went to the fair, it was the Del Mar Fair in San Diego where I grew up and I loved all the animals and I found out that these animals got sold uh, for meat, and I was horrified, and that was a sad day in my life to find that out. Cause I was like thinking, like, oh, I want to be in 4-H and raise one of these sheep, but then you have to give it away to get eaten, and it's not like something that I think is morally wrong. In fact, I think it's really good for people to learn, like, hey, where where the meat comes from. Like, if you're gonna if you're gonna eat meat, it's better that you take care of the animal well and understand like what goes into raising an animal properly. But yeah, it is it is kind of a. Uh, uh, it was one of those shocking moments of like, oh, yeah, okay, it is, it is animals. It is sheeps and, and cute piggies. Uh-oh. <laughs> so, yeah, very, very interesting. Um, we are going to take another quick break, and then we will be back with just a few more of your listener questions. So hang tight.
0: Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health.
3: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
1: We are back, and uh, here is a question from Floyd Pollard who on Twitter, who asks, which bear is best? So I got to say, sun bear, no contest, longest tongue, best bear. Tongue is almost a foot long. That bear's the winner. Next question. John John on Twitter asks, why are snails so slow? Shouldn't making the ground slippery underneath them make them, you know, faster? So this is a really interesting question. There's actually a recent snail study at Stanford that seems to indicate that the snail slime, their mucus, it does help with snail locomotion, but it's not essential or even the most important part of snail locomotion. Unless the snail is traveling vertically, in which case the sticky slime is very important because it allows the snail to adhere to the surface. So snails move through a series of muscle contractions on their foot. So that's that flat base part of the snail. The mucus trail does help with their movement because as you put pressure, while it's very sticky, it seems like, well, how it's sticky like how can they move across it easily it seems like it would just like glue them down but actually when they put pressure on the the mucus it stops being sticky and actually goes from being sticky to becoming a slick fluid so that's a really important interesting physical property of this the snail slime like if you've ever Um, experimented with like these sort of different different fluids like there's the um, What's it called like oobleck the the when you mix cornstarch and water and it's like this um, Non-newtonian fluid and you can see like difference in pressure actually causes some fluids to change differently So like when you mix when you mix cornstarch with water And then you like slap it with your hand like you have a high velocity pressure on the fluid, then it actually becomes firm, more like a solid, whereas like if you slowly put your hand in, it behaves like a liquid. So I'm not sure that the same, like it's not gonna be the same exact reasons why snail slime changes property when you put pressure on it, it's just an example of like how a liquid um, can change its physical property depending on the pressure that you put on it. So the snail, there's not that much pressure on it, it's sticky, it can help the snail cling to surfaces or crawl up surfaces. And if the snail puts pressure on it, it becomes slick, so it can slide across it. But yeah, this this Stanford study found that even in the absence of mucus, the snails can still move. Uh, So it really is those muscle contractions that uh, is doing the main force of movement for them, although the, the mucus does help them go along. In terms of why they're so slow, basically... Forming a wave movement with this very small, squishy muscles along the foot of the snail isn't going to get them going very fast, no matter how well lubricated they are. So that's the mechanics of why they're slow. They just they simply don't have like the muscle uh, to get them going that fast, and they don't have the surface area on their foot to get them going that fast. Um, the reason they have not evolved to be faster is that they don't really need to. Their shells offer them the protection that running away otherwise would. So instead of running, they have developed the strategy of hiding in their shells. And so they don't actually have to be fast to escape predators. And they also don't have to be fast to eat their their chosen food, which is vegetation and leaves. But there is actually a faster snail. So the fastest land-crawling snail in the world is the marine plow snail, which can crawl at a breakneck speed of 2.5 centimeters a second. Doesn't sound super impressive, but when you look at videos of these snails booking it, it is kind of surprising because you are not used to snails moving that fast. The reason they can go so fast is it has an unusually wide flat foot. So again, the foot of the snail is just like that flat, you know, its main body like where you see that, that flat thing that is what makes the slime and what it moves along. Um, but for these, the plow snail, it's really wide. It almost looks like wings. And it can use this to like physically push itself and undulate, kind of like it's doing, you know, the worm dance move to get along. And it, this will, because it has this greater surface area where it can use its muscles to like basically shove itself and flop along, it actually gets to go a lot faster than, um, are sort of common garden snail. So uh, it needs to go faster than a common garden snail because its preferred food is dead fish, jellyfish, and other rotting things that have washed ashore. And these are very popular things for scavengers. So for it to get a crack at a carcass, it's got to move pretty fast before it gets out-competed by other snails or other scavengers. Uh, Also fun is that they can use this large flat foot to surf the waves. So like when they want to come ashore, instead of having to swim or crawl all the way there, they just fan out their foot and like surf on to shore. So that's that's when a snail can really get moving is when they're surfers. So this next question is from Doc Garby on Twitter who asks, Tarantulas with frogs, owls with snakes, crabs with anemones, Captive cheetahs with dogs? Is there any evidence of emotional attachment in these mutually beneficial pairings or could the respective creatures be swapped out for replacements of the same species without notice? So this is a very complex question. Uh, First of all, so what Doc Garby is talking about is some mutualistic symbiotic relationships here. So uh, with tarantulas and frog, it is the microhylid frogs uh, who team up with tarantulas and the tarantulas do not eat these little tiny frogs. So the frogs benefit from the tarantulas because first of all, they have protection with this big tarantula bodyguard. And they also get to eat bugs that are attracted to the remains of a tarantula's kills. And the tarantula benefits from these little tiny frogs because the frogs love to eat ants and ants love to eat tarantula eggs. So the frog protects the tarantula eggs from the ants. And ants are harder for the tarantulas to eat because they're so small and fast and nimble. And it's much easier for the frog who has this like really rapid fire tongue and mouth to be able to eat the little ants. So the other pairing that Doc Garby mentioned is Owls with Snakes. So Eastern Screech Owls and Texas Blind Snakes form a sort of partnership. So the Eastern Screech Owl will pick up one of these little Texas Blind Snakes and these snakes are these little itty-bitty things. They kind of look like oversized worms and they plop them in their nest, but for the most part instead of the chicks eating the blind snake, they, the snakes will burrow down into the nest and actually pick off bugs keeping pests away from the owl's nest and the other pairing that was mentioned was crabs with anemones which uh, So pom-pom crabs which are these little tiny crabs very cute will actually place little parts of anemones on their claws and attach them there and they use these as like uh, these these venomous boxing gloves that can sting And any predator who tries to get too close. So this obviously benefits the crabs because it gives them cool boxing gloves and the this actually helps anemones reproduce. So by basically splitting up these anemone parts and transferring them around to different parts of the ocean, it allows them to disperse and reproduce by actually like like breaking off from the main anemone and they can actually uh, Uh, Reproduce that way, which is really fascinating. And the captive cheetahs with dogs thing is that in zoos where they have a cheetah, they will often pair it with a dog and raise them together with a puppy because cheetahs get really nervous all on their own. And a, they found that like uh, dogs get along really well with cheetahs and vice versa and it helps a cheetah feel really emotionally secure and they also don't like have conflicts with the dogs as well so it helps cheetahs who would otherwise be really anxious in captivity to be a little, little more relaxed and feel protected by their buddy, the dog. In terms of the meat of the question, which is, is there evidence of emotional attachment, or could you swap out like any of these individuals? So I think, first of all, it kind of depends on the animal. I think that you know, uh, with when you have the more simple relationships like tarantulas with frogs, owls with snakes, crabs with anemones. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think they're particularly attached to any individuals, so I think you could swap them out. Now, I'm not as certain about that answer with the tarantulas and frogs. I'd have to look more into it. I'm not sure whether there's been research on that, whether they prefer any kind of like specific tarantula or any the tarantulas stick to one specific frog. I do know that they do uh, prefer, once they've learned sort of like their smell and taste, I guess, of their skin, like they, they do know that that frog is their, their little buddy and if you, these researchers skinned some of these frogs and put their, like the okay, so this is messed up, but in the, these these hi, microhylid frogs who are friends with tarantulas, there was a, a research study where researchers would take one of the frogs, which were the little buddies of the tarantula, and they would skin them and put that skin on another frog species that was not the buddy of the tarantula, so the tarantula would not eat the frogs that normally they probably would eat once they had the skins of these microhylid frogs. So the tarantulas definitely have a preference for that species, but in terms of whether they have a preference for individual frogs, I'm not sure is known. At least I don't know it. Uh, But I would guess probably not. However, once you start to get more complex animals like cheetahs and dogs, they definitely have an attachment to Individual dogs, individual cheetah. Like that, you know, I mean, like if you have a dog, you know that that dog may form specific attachments with certain people or even certain other animals. And this also happens in nature. Coyotes and badgers will sometimes pair up and hunt together. And it seems like it is an individual seeking out a specific individual. Like a coyote knows that a specific badger is down to hunt together. And so they go and team up. Now, in terms of whether there's an emotional connection behind this preference or whether it's just a practical thing of like, hey, I know this individual, we've gone hunting together before, I know they're cool, I know that they are not going to, you know, bite me or be unfair, it's hard to know, like, where the practicality starts and where the emotions start, And, and if anything, I would guess that they'd be highly associated, because For behaviors, you have to get some kind of reward for doing a behavior. And that can be like a physical reward of feeling full or a mental reward of feeling happy or a positive emotion. So in terms of survival, if animals get a positive emotion out of a beneficial relationship, that will probably help them continue to seek out that relationship. Uh, So I would say that for more complex animals like coyotes and badgers or cheetahs and dogs that, yeah, I would guess they do have an emotion behind it, an emotional attachment to the individual that they like to hang out with and brings them some benefit. Um, But it's like, you know, we have emotions all the time that we may not think of as being like practical but really do have a practical purpose like the reason humans like friends and family like it really is very helpful in fact essential for our survival humans aren't the most strong most you know well adapted animals to survive on our own we really depend on society our whole human history is being depending on other people to help us and we help them and our emotional attachment to other people I help think really aided in our survival so I think that there is this connection there right where evolutionary behaviors are also emotional behaviors and it's kind of hard to separate out the two in terms of when like which animals feel that emotion right like it's actually—it seems kind of hard for me to be able to point a finger. It's like, all right, here's where the animal is complex enough to actually feel complex emotions. So, like, do sea anemones form an emotional attachment to the crabs who wear them as boxing gloves? Like, no, I don't. I don't think so. Other than literally being attached, uh, anemones do not have a brain. They have a nervous system, but they have no centralized nervous system. So, I don't think they have really much capacity for thought at all uh just very basic stimulus response stuff uh but then it's like well so does a cheetah feel something for the dog that it was raised with yeah i think so but then where you know kind of in this spectrum of animal brain complexity do the emotions start to set in i don't know i mean it's really it's hard to say. I mean, you have like a rat, which I think is, shows some very complex emotional intelligence. Uh, I think rats may feel emotional bonds with each other and with humans. Uh, like anyone who is a pet owner who has a rat may attest to, but a mouse, I I don't know. Like it's harder to, it's kind of harder to see. Like mice seem to have some problem solving ability. They seem to have uh preference for their siblings and but then when it it like well it's their preference for their siblings just the evolutionary advantage of sticking with your siblings and trying to make sure like your genes uh pass on and maybe their genes pass on and knowing that they're probably not going to attack you uh it's I, I don't know it's really hard it's hard to say it's hard to tell how much capacity for emotion that mice feel and if anything, I think it's probably like a sliding scale of emotional awareness. Like I would say like maybe a mouse has some limited capacity for emotions, maybe a rat has more capacity for emotions and you get the more more and more complex, more and more social animals and then maybe they get uh more like deeper emotions like uh humans and apes and and dolphins cetaceans elephants i think all have great capacity for deep emotions so that that's as close to an answer that i can probably give so yeah really interesting question uh and i think that'll do it for us today with with your wonderful listener questions really enjoy all of them thank you so much for sending them in again if you would like to send me some of your questions all you gotta do is email me at creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com, or you can find me on Twitter, Creature Feet Pod. That's F-E-A-T. Not F-E-E-T, that's something very different. And that's that's the Creature Feet Pod on Twitter. I'm also Katie Golden on Twitter, K-A-T-I-E, G-O-L-D-I-N. And you know, that's my that's my people account. So I tweet about all sorts of things, all my Katie thoughts, not always animal related but yeah if you if you have animal questions you can send those there as well and of course on instagram at creature feature pod on instagram send those in there also you got you got pet pictures send them to me i love them you got crab memes do it send it to me you found a weird thing in your yard i don't know send it to me i'll look at it will i be able to identify it maybe who knows but go ahead and send those things in i love reading them And maybe I will answer some more questions on a future Q&A podcast. Yeah, and let let me know. You know, if you guys like these Q&A things, maybe I'll keep doing them. If you kind of like, maybe like them a little bit, but want them to be like spread out uh, between episodes and like, yeah, just just let me know. Uh, And if you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and review. That really not only helps me out with the old... With the old Apple Podcast algorithm, but it also really makes me feel good to read. I, I really enjoy reading all of your feedback and comments. Really warms my little little bird heart. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're all having as good of a holiday season as is possible. Please stay safe out there. I love you all uh, and really care about you all. So you know, uh, I'm I'm here with you. You know, send me send me pictures of. Of your pets and like festive hats, if you want. That'd be great. Thanks so much to the Space Cossacks for their super awesome song, Ex Illumina. Creature Feature is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts like the one you just heard, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or hey, guess what? Wherever you listen to your favorite shows. See you next Wednesday. Are you ready to take
0: charge of your health journey?
1: Look no further than Trinity
0: School of Natural Health.